What comes to your mind when I say the word drama? A good play at the theater? A riveting story put to film? Any female in your home between the ages of two weeks and 17 years? If you've been here for the past two Sundays, you've been following a pretty good drama in the book of Ruth, the Old Testament book of Ruth. In fact, some of you would call this a riveting story in print that is being played out almost like what you would see at the theater. And we have had some human dramatics as Naomi has said, Oh, bitterness, bitterness, life is all bitter. The Almighty has testified against me. Now, I confess to Naomi in style uh, outburst when life is pretty tough, but please don't call me a drama queen. Please. Today is the final act in the play that we are calling God's Beautiful Grace in Ruth. There is an enormous amount of drama in this final act because so much is at stake. Because our intermissions are so long, seven days in fact, let's review a bit. The setting of our play in, is in the little Israeli town of Bethlehem. The, it, it, it happened, it occurred some 1200 years before the time of Jesus. It was a time when the judges ruled in the land. There was no king in Israel because God's plan was for him to be king, for he himself to be king, for Yahweh to be their king. But because men and women are naturally rebellious, it simply was stated as a time in which every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So as the curtain rises on Act 1, a man of Bethlehem named Elimelech reacted to a drought in the, in the land by moving his family to Moab. Israelites were not generally accepted, well accepted in the land of Moab. But somehow, Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, Malan and Kilian, made do in Moab. In fact, Malan married Ruth and Kilian married Orpah. Uh, eventually, these three men died, leaving Naomi in very dire straits. Widows in that time were in big trouble if they had no son to provide for them. So when, when Naomi heard that God or that Yahweh had blessed his people back in Bethlehem with good crops, she headed for home. Ruth and Orpah said, we're going with you. She said, I would enjoy the company for a while. They went down the road a little ways. And she said, ladies, go back. And Orpah said, okay. But Ruth, in dramatic fashion, Declined to go home and said, not only am I coming with you, but Yahweh will now be my God and may he curse me if I do not follow you and come under his protection. When Naomi and Ruth got to Bethlehem, Naomi went immediately to a house and just stayed there in depression. Ruth got busy seeking to find food for her family, gleaning in the fields. Now, if you want to know more about gleaning in the fields, just go online and listen to the message from last week. Uh, If you will, you'll hear the dramatic way in which God orchestrated a meeting between Boaz and Ruth. It was not 
By coincidence, though, as we will talk about a lot today. It was the good and gracious Boaz and the foreign peasant Ruth. Boaz showed great generosity to Ruth. He was a landowner. He had crops. And he made sure that Ruth got enough food for her and Naomi to exist for quite some time. In fact, Ruth gleaned in his fields for some six to seven weeks, all the way through the end of the wheat and the barley harvest and took home very likely enough food for them to exist for almost a year. Now, it was obvious from the very beginning that Boaz was attracted to Ruth, but also that he thought very highly of Ruth and Naomi, even though their places in society were quite different. Ruth was a a foreign peasant woman. Naomi was a desperate woman who had just had everything go wrong. She had lost everything. And Boaz was a highly respected man with significant social status in the community. Boaz was a good bit older than Ruth, so he kept his distance. They had this initial meeting on the first day Ruth was gleaning in the fields. Then he kept his distance for the rest of that six to seven weeks, probably so that he would not be accused of any impropriety. And he didn't speak to her at all. And Naomi, though, finally said, enough's enough. Ruth, go and propose to the man. Again, if you weren't here last week, that seems very odd. But if you go back and catch up, it's not that uh, odd at all. Marriage in this situation was not simply a matter of romance, although there was a very clear attraction between Boaz and Ruth, between man and woman. No less than Ruth and Naomi's well-being was at stake. And I'm certain Naomi felt like my survival is at stake. Ruth and Naomi needed a provider. So Ruth followed Naomi's instruction and appealed to Boaz to marry her on the basis of a family connection between Boaz and Elimelech. And you know how it is if your cousin to one person, you're also cousin to the children. Uh, if you've come from the north, you may find it quite odd when you say, oh, yeah, that person's my cousin. Oh, your parents related? Oh, no, he's like my fourth or fifth cousin. You know, we, we keep up with cousins way on down the line here in the south. And so Boaz was not only connected to Elimelech, he was connected to Malon, also Ruth's dead husband. This proposal of marriage was risky on a number of levels. But Boaz was overjoyed and told Ruth that there was one matter to settle in order to accomplish all that they both wished to occur. You know, I know that we as the audience very much hope that Boaz gets the girl. When we recognize that the story of Boaz, Boaz and Ruth, is in reality not just a story between man and woman, but it's the story of Jesus and us. All of a sudden, we find ourselves right in the middle of the drama of life with no less than eternity at stake. Now, we know how this story ends, but just imagine you're at the play and you're watching it and you're not exactly sure how it's going to end and, and, and the, the suspense has built and you don't know. Do you remember what it was like before you knew Jesus and before and when you were convicted of your sin? And it's like, oh, no, I'm in big trouble. If something doesn't happen, if the right thing doesn't happen, I'm going down. Now, if this sounds overly dramatic, please know 
that on a drama scale of one to ten, it's about a two in light of reality. It's really that serious. That much is at stake, not only for Boaz and Ruth, but for us and our relationship with Yahweh and with his son, Jesus. It's a good place for us to stop and pray. Let's do so. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and our spiritual eyes to all that is at stake in this story. And Father, for those of us who know Jesus, I would assume that the majority of those gathered here this morning would say, yes, Jesus is my Savior. He is my Redeemer. I've trusted His death on the cross as payment for my sins. For those of us who know, may we be reminded of all that You have done for us and the need for us to share this wonderful news with others. Lord, if there are, there, there are those here this morning who don't have a Redeemer and are just becoming aware of their need, then may this wonderful news settle on them like a blanket this day. And may they repent of their sin and put their hope in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. As Act 3 begins, we find our hero, Boaz, intent on claiming his bride. But he's going to do so in a legal and an ethical matter. You'll recall in chapter 3, when Ruth proposed marriage to him, she did so on the basis of his responsibility as a kinsman redeemer. The ESV uses the term redeemer, but since family is part of the equation, Kinsman redeemer is not only appropriate, it's, it's, it's the better term. And in fact, it's, it's used in probably a lot of your translations. The words redeemer and redemption occur 23 times in the book of Ruth. 23 times in, in this little four chapter book, four normal sized chapters. Do you think redemption is the key theme in this book? Ruth said, in essence, marry me for you are a kinsman redeemer. Now, Ruth was appealing to a couple of laws, and this could get complicated. If you're a note taker, this is a good time. Talk about this some more next week when we gather back here um, just to discuss what we've learned in Ruth. And I'll, I'll refer to that in a minute. But to begin with, in Leviticus 25, Yahweh made provision for people who were in Naomi and Ruth's situation. In the event a man was forced to sell his land in a personal economic crisis, he was in reality only leasing the land. Legal provisions were made for the land to stay in the family. It was a big deal to God that that, that land stay within a particular family. If the seller himself was never in a position to buy back the land, then somebody else in the family would. An uncle, a brother, an uncle, a cousin. And this person would become known as... The kinsman redeemer, because he, in, in purchasing the land, he was obligated to care for the family of the initial owner. So the lamb would stay in the family. And the family, who had found themselves in desperate straits, would have a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. 
That's not the only thing going on here. While Ruth did appeal to Boaz on the basis of the duty of the kinsman redeemer, she also appealed to the familial duty of the leveret marriage, a responsibility designated in Ruth 20, excuse me, Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 to 10. If a man died like Ruth's husband Malan had died, then his brother, though not required by law, was nonetheless expected to marry the widow of his deceased brother and then through her produce a child, hopefully a son, who would inherit the land that belonged to the deceased husband. The leveret marriage was as much about, as much as we want it to be about caring for the widows, it's as much about really more so about keeping land in the family than it is caring for the widow. Although, clearly this is a byproduct, a blessing, a benefit of the leveret marriage is that now this widow has a son who will care for her in her old age and she won't be like Naomi saying, Woe is me! God has testified again. He's against me. So does this make sense so far? I can see many of you are deep in meditation about this. The Deuteronomy passage makes it clear that a leveret marriage was not required by law. But if a man refused to perform what was expected of him, then the woman could publicly, in fact, was told this is what she should do. In public, she should go up to him, take his sandals off his feet and spit in his face. So shall it be done, Deuteronomy 5 says, to the one who will not fulfill this responsibility. Not a law, but definitely expected. So all of this, the duty of the kinsman redeemer, the ethical responsibility to provide offspring through the widow of the deceased man was in play when Ruth asked Boaz to marry her. He's saying, she's saying, you have... An obligation. Boaz was thrilled by the proposal and was ready and willing to be a kinsman redeemer who would fulfill the responsibility and the duty of a leveret marriage. But he made it clear that things had to be done according to ethical standards, if not legal mandate. There's a possibility that Boaz could have found a way around the law and said, sure, baby, let's just do this and we'll we'll get it done. We'll get hitched. But he said, no, something else is in play here. There is a kinsman redeemer nearer to you than I am. Boaz's integrity created somewhat of a dilemma. I mean, here's this kinsman redeemer closer to Ruth than Boaz. And he says, we've got to check with him. If he'll marry you, fine. If not, then I will. You know, one commentary written by a theologian that I highly respect said that many teachers make far too much about the connection between Boaz's act of redemption and Jesus' sacrifice that ransomed us. His argument is is based primarily on the fact that, that the New Testament never mentions Boaz And certainly it doesn't mention him as a type of Christ. So don't try to make too much out of it. And I recognize his his theological point and position. But the irrefutable image of the gospel in Ruth cannot cannot do anything but point us 
to Jesus. It's just like, you know, one of those. You ever been to church? You don't see it much anymore. I guess it's old school stuff. But somebody is singing a song or a sermon is being preached and somebody's over here doing art and you don't have any idea what's happening. And then all of a sudden at the climax of the song or the climax of the of, of, of the sermon, there it is. There's the cross of Jesus or something that is very much connected with what is being preached. And that's what's happened in the Old Testament. A, a picture is being painted. And in the end, it's Jesus that we see. And then think about this connection. Boaz loved Ruth. And he wanted to redeem her. But the law stood in the way. Something had to be done in order for the law to be followed exactly so that he might redeem her in the appropriate way. In the same way, Jesus loves us. He very much wants us to, to redeem us. But the law stands in the way. And something had to be done. And so Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins that He might redeem us according to the law. The wrath of God had to be satisfied. And it was either going to be satisfied on us, spend an eternity separate from Him in hell, or something had to be done. And Jesus Stepped in the way. I fully understand why Charles Spurgeon calls Jesus our great and glorious Boaz. Next Sunday morning, we're going to take time to reflect on the lessons that we've learned in Ruth. I know a lot of you will be gone. Those of you who will be here next week, we're just going to think back on these lessons that we've picked up over these last three weeks. And if you're not making all the gospel connections, if the lover at marriage and the, and the kinsman redeemer, if all that doesn't make sense, we can talk about it in more detail next week. And you're going to have opportunity to share. So please come prepared to share about what God has taught you, the ways that He's challenged you and blessed you throughout this series. And please look at this week. We're going to send out an email that will uh, sort of help prepare you for sharing the lessons that we've learned in God's Word. You know, all of what we have considered so far has been foundational for the thrilling conclusion of our play. Have you, have you picked up the idea that we haven't even gotten to chapter 3 yet? I mean, chapter 4. We really are just getting there. Act 1 of our play was titled, Despair. Naomi was convinced that God had judged her and life would never be good again. Never again. Act 2 was titled Hope when it appeared that somehow, beyond hope, there may be a possibility of life. It was almost too good to be true, but there was hope. Today, Act 3, we find the reality of redemption. And as we go through chapter 4, which really won't take that long, don't think, oh boy, we're just getting started. Not really. Because all of what we've, like I say, we can go a lot quicker now that the foundation is laid. But some of what I say is is found in the Hebrew text, but it didn't make it all the way to the English translation. True to his word, uh, Boaz went to the city gates where business deals were transacted. We go to the courthouse, they went to the city gates. And And he went early to the city gates because all the men would pass through the gates of women too. Men and women would be going in, out the gates to get out to the fields. The city was was walled and gated. So people were going out to get to the fields, hurrying on their way to work. And it was a good time to do business. And at the very exact moment 
that Boaz got there, our unnamed Redeemer came by. It appears to be another one of those coincidences, but the events of this book are not the least bit coincidental anymore than the events of our lives are just happenstance. God orchestrated it all. Now, in our English text, Boaz says, turn aside, friend. In the Hebrew, it says, turn aside, Mr. So-and-so. You can understand why that didn't make it to the English translation, I would imagine. Literally, it says, turn aside, Mr. So-and-so. Why would Boaz call this guy Mr. So-and-so? Probably he didn't. This book was written some two, three hundred years after the events occurred. Some people say that the reason it was written was it was in hopes that that the northern tribes would be reunited with with Judah and that Israel would become one again in in reminding uh, them of their heritage, reminding everybody of their heritage. Who knows? We we do know that it was written much later, well after the time of, of David. And it could be that the writer, because remember, family was a big deal. And maybe the writer is just trying to protect the dignity of this family of Mr. So-and-so. Because this is an embarrassment, the way he acts here. So that could be what was happening. You know, when we look at this, it's another one of those. And this is the way narrative literature works. You're, you're reading and you say, wow, sort of makes me think of this and that. This guy is, is anonymous. In fact, we call him Mr. So-and-so. We can make application and say that all suitors for our souls other than Jesus are irrelevant. All others are self-serving in seeking our conversion. And all others are meaningless in the big scope of time. Anyway, Boaz told Mr. So-and-so to sit down. Then he set about finding ten of the city's elders to make this a legal transaction, just like just like we would have a notary or we'd go to court and there would be a jury and, and, and the decision is made and it's made legal. Boaz then began explaining the situation. And I am certain that the nearer redeemer was nowhere uh, was was um, no doubt aware. Either Naomi had leased the property earlier, or more likely, she was ready to sell it for good to a family redeemer. And such a sale would indicate that she was desperate, but it would provide her with means for survival. And I'm certain that this man that we don't know his name was aware of it. He's a shrewd businessman. And he's probably been trying to figure, what am I going to do? Now he's confronted and he sees an opportunity. If he buys this land, then he's going to have to take care of Naomi. He ain't got to worry about marrying Naomi. She's not of marriageable age. And so, you know, it's it's not a problem of his. He's going to take care of her. But he will make a great deal of profit from this land. After taking care of her, he, he, he makes profit. And not only that, he then wills it to his family. It's like all of a sudden, like my son is all going to be inheriting way more than I thought he was. Now, I'm sure he's considering also that his reputation is going to grow in the town as the townsfolk stand in admiration of his largesse. And 
even though we don't know this, this is speculation, there's probably a pretty good possibility that he's thinking, not only that, Mr. High and Mighty Boaz won't get the feel. I'll take it! And the audience holds its collective breath. Is all lost? Is Ruth missing her opportunity to, sh- to marry her knight in shining armor because Boaz is such a man of integrity? Furthermore, might she end up as the wife of Mr. So-and-so? This is unthinkable. It's unconscionable that this would happen. You ever seen one of those movies that the ending is just so bad? You go, why did I watch this? You know, when somebody says, hey, have you seen that movie? You say, yes, and don't ask me about it. I don't want to even talk about it, much less I don't want to see it. I do not want to see that again. Is that where we're heading in this story? Mr. So-and-so has agreed to act as the Redeemer. Not so fast, Boaz calls his bluff. Don't you know, Mr. So-and-so, that when you buy the field, you're under a moral obligation to take Ruth as your, as your wife and father a son who will then inherit the land. Maybe, maybe Elimelech died before his sons. In fact, I think we, we are told that he, that he did. And now this obligation is being passed on. You have a moral obligation to marry Ruth when you buy the land. Oh, man, nobody goes by that law anymore. But I can see you're going to insist. It'll mess up my estate and possibly hurt my children. And all of a sudden, Mr. So-and-so goes from appearing to be a noble relative to being exposed as the self-serving ingrate that he is. You take it, Boaz. So the deal was sealed with the selfish relative taking off his sandals and giving them to Boaz, which in itself was a bit of a public admission and acknowledgement of his character. Remember in Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10, where the woman would come and spit in the... That's not going on now. May have never gone on. But part of that custom survived. And to give your sandals means I am unwilling to do what... What really, morally, I'm obligated to do. And so Boaz turns to the elders and to, to what was no doubt a pretty good-sized crowd by now. And he says, you are witnesses. I have inherited the field of Malon, of Elimelech, and I have bought, I have redeemed that land, and I have bought Ruth to be my wife. If only it were that easy, right? I bought a wife. Of course, some of you may feel like you've bought a wife after you've been married two or three years with all the money that you... Listen, ladies, this is what he really meant. This is what he really meant. I have bought a field, and wouldn't you know, beyond my wildest hopes and dreams, a way has been made for Ruth to be my wife. That's what he meant. That's really what he meant. Did you know that Jesus loves you that much? 
The New Testament tells us that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for us. He purchased us for himself, but Jesus' redemption required required far more than material treasures that pass away, far more than money. First Peter tells us that we were not redeemed with stuff that passes away like silver and gold. But rather, Jesus gave his precious blood to redeem us. What a price he paid. And what a gift to us. What a redeemer. We have a redeemer. Well, back to Bethlehem's city gates. All the people who had witnessed this remarkable transaction voiced their approval in a threefold blessing. May the Lord give Ruth conception so that the house of Israel may grow. May your fame increase, Boaz. And because of the family connection, may your house be like that of Judah and Tamar who produced Perez, your ancestor. We'll come back to that story in a moment. But let's consider that Ruth... Conceiving was no sure thing. For up to, to, to ten years, it could have been that long. Ruth had been married to Malan and, and there had been no child born. May not have been quite that long, but it was certainly long enough that her getting pregnant was no sure thing. It is amazing how much trouble the women in the line of Christ had conceiving. Sarah, Rebecca, Ruth. Even though there's joy in the marriage of Boaz and Ruth, it may require a miracle for her to get pregnant. Wouldn't you know it? Yahweh intervened. We've seen his hand every step of the way, but this is only the second time that we're told that Yahweh directly intervened with his people. The first time was when he gave bread when he gave Bethlehem good crops. And now we find him giving Ruth the privilege of bearing a son named Obed. And wouldn't you know it, the women told Naomi that Yahweh had blessed her with a son. The way she takes this baby on a lap just like any grandma would. tells you that she understands that God has blessed her. A redeemer, in fact, had brought Naomi from despair to hope to full redemption. Naomi was told that Obed would be to her a restorer of life. You know what connection there is there? It's like resurrection. It's like new life. Not only did it point to the resurrection of Jesus, but the resurrection that we are going to enjoy. It's because of our Redeemer that the difficulties of life have not the final say. No matter how long our bodies have laid in the grave, one day we're going to be resurrected and we're going to spend eternity with our great and glorious Boaz. Jesus. 
Now, you may not think that a guy named Obed is that big of a deal. But Obed was the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David, the most oft referred to person in the genealogy of of Jesus. In fact, Jesus called himself the son of David. So the story that we have read is a big deal. And in the closing verses of this book, in the epilogue of the play, if you will, we are informed that one of the reasons the story was told in the first place was that this line, because of this miraculous meeting and the ways that God intervened, bypassing all the problems, and not bypassing, but going through all of the problems and dealing with them one after another as, he, as we come to him. King David was born. Much later in history, we know that this is an important part of the story of our redemption in Jesus. Satan knows that the, that the seed has been promised that one day the Messiah will come. And he knows it's the line of Judah. And, and that's gotten lost in the wash and in the mix. Remember, everybody was shocked when David is all of a sudden king of Israel. This little shepherd boy. And Saul from the tribe of Benjamin had been king. So it would be natural that his sons know David ends up king. And every step of the way, Satan is trying to to ruin this line. He's trying to get his hand in, but God wouldn't allow it to happen. You know, when you look at this list of people uh, in the genealogy, if you made the story of their lives, just the stuff that the Bible covers. If you made the story of their lives into a movie, it would be R-rated at best. I mean, the study of Perez in particular constitutes a sordid incident in the history of Israel, God's covenant people, and it's all wrapped up with this leveret marriage thing. So it's it's very appropriate that 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 be appealed to this story of Ruth is understood in the bigger context of God's law and the way that he is providing for people and the way that people try to get around that and circumvent it. But then a redeemer steps in at the right time. Now, not to use the wrong motives to get you to home groups, but if you want to know more about this line, this week is the week to go. We'll try to keep it PG-13 rated. There ain't no way to do it at PG. But we'll at least try to make it PG-13, not R-rated. We're going to close this morning, though, with a lesson from this bloodline, this this line that eventually turned out to be the line of Christ. What are we to make uh, of the inclusion of these less than exemplary characters in this most important line? Well, we have to understand that the cold reality is that we are never good enough to do the work of God, nor are we ever good enough even to please God in any way. We never will be. No matter how good we think we are, we are in desperate need of God's grace, a gift that we can never earn. If a a Redeemer doesn't step up, not only are we desperate, we're doomed. That's the bad news. The good news is that it just so happens as you read in Ruth. We have a Redeemer. Jesus. The story of Ruth is not just a beautiful romance between man and woman. It's the story of God's beautiful grace. And it's a picture 
of Jesus' great love for us that leads to our redemption. So here's the question. Do you know Jesus? You are in a desperate place if you don't. I don't know that you're aware of it. The song I heard recently, I've heard it two, three times on the radio. She got the news today, got a call, got the news today. Never thought it could happen. Life changes in a split second. Life changes just like that. You're in a far more desperate place than you think if you don't know Jesus. You need a Redeemer. But the good news is He stands right ready. If you repent of your sins... And you say, Lord, I believe, I, I'm tired of trying to get there on my own. Even if you're not tired of it, just say it's wrong, God. I can't get to you. It's not the baptism. It's not the church membership. It's not the good deeds. I am undone without you. Please forgive me of my sins. And, and, and I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. And I give you my life, my whole life. If you've never done that, in just a moment, we're going to pray. This is a good time for you to do it. If you do it, please tell me afterwards. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, confess Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved, it says. Then all of a sudden, this Redeemer is your Redeemer. And without him, all is lost. Just before we pray, I want to say what an appropriate time. How appropriate is it to come to the end of this story of Ruth and to take our benevolence offering? Just so happens to fall on the last Sunday of the month, this last story. This story is about the way that Yahweh tenderly cares for the material needs of his people. But it's about so much more than that, obviously. It's about the way that Yahweh cares for our spiritual needs and how He gave us a Redeemer in Jesus. And it's our responsibility to help those who are in need. It's our great privilege to help those who are in need because of what God has done for us. And it's also a great privilege when we provide that material assistance to also... Share the good news about the Redeemer who will put an end to the poverty of spirit and soul that resides with all of us until we know Jesus. So let's close our time in prayer. If you've never trusted Jesus, would this be the time? Could you, would you just say, I'm in desperate need because of my sin and I repent. Lord Jesus, provide for me what I cannot attain on my own. I believe Jesus died for me. Would you do that? And ask Him to be your Savior. He stands so ready. And the legal requirements have been met. He's died on the cross for you. Our Father, thank you for this beautiful...